0: And welcome to the Society of Construction Law Australia's podcast, the podcast where we look at technical and legal issues facing the Australian construction industry. My name is Melissa Yeo, and I'm chair of the Society's Communications Subcommittee. The Society is pleased to bring you a recording of its recent webinar event, Gold Digger. What are your state security of payment recourses? In it, Matthew Hickey and Bianca Cable of Level 27 Chambers in Brisbane offer a practical summary of what was, is, and might be when it comes to securing payment for construction projects of all sizes and at all stages of development in the era of COVID-19. A word of warning, the quality of this recording is less than ideal due to remote recording and variable internet speeds. We're very grateful for your understanding as we navigate this new way of bringing resources to you in the time of COVID-19. Thanks again, and we hope you enjoy Matthew and Bianca's
1: presentation. I start by thanking you all uh, for joining us today. You're joined by other viewers from all around Australia. Indeed, we've got viewers offshore. I make a particular mention of Jackie Masters in Houston. Hi, it's lovely to see you watching. You're all welcome, thanks for joining in. Our set, Level 27 Chambers here in Brisbane, is always very pleased to contribute to soccer events, and Bianca and I are delighted to be able to participate today in this way given the interesting times in which we all find ourselves. Interestingly, the genesis for this presentation was not COVID-19. Rather, it arose because those in our set who practise in this space, which is most of us, had begun to notice in this jurisdiction an appreciable upswing in activity around security payment and product as claims by comparison to recent years. The levels of activity or inactivity, in particular segments of litigation, Frequently as the canary in the coal mine, demonstrating the health or illness of various parts of the economy. Recent legislative changes in Queensland, especially around subcontractor's charges, and the appreciable upswing in activity have led us to consider what tune the The canary was whistling. And so we thought it might be timely to present on these issues, but then enter stage left coronavirus and COVID-19. The global pandemic and its immediate and overwhelming impacts on all segments of society has cast its hand sanitizer centered pall over everything, including the substance of our presentation. So we've attempted to shift our focus ever so slightly from the niche topic we'd originally planned and diverted it to include some immediately relevant and emerging matters, which we hope will be of interest. We recognise that because so many people are still working from home and because the current circumstances are causing such apprehension and confusion, There's a distinct possibility our audience is broader than the usual roster of lawyers, experts and industry insiders to whom we typically speak in person at soccer events. So with that in mind, we've tried to include information today which will be as informative as possible for as many of you as possible. So the specialists among you should forgive us if we traverse some ground already somewhat familiar to you. So what are we going to discuss? Well, we've divided our presentation today into three broad topics and Sean's already mentioned those, what was, what is and what might be. As to what was, Bianca will briefly survey the existing security of payments regime and mechanisms around Australia. As to what is, I'll be dealing with the impacts of the coronavirus on the building and construction industry here and abroad. And Bianca will be reviewing the degree to which COVID-19 induced legislation has impacted security of payment regimes. Then finally, as to what might be, I'll discuss the issues we predict can be expected to arise, especially from our perspective as litigators, some suggestions on protective measures we think should be taken to guard against them, and a few practical tips for otherwise assisting clients in the months ahead. So, having laid out the roadmap, I'll hand over to Bianca to remind us of what was.
2: As Matthew said, we'll first begin with the first element of today's focus, which is what was. So, as we all know, Cash flow is really the lifeblood line of the construction industry. So, for example, as we saw in the report of the Coal Royal Commission into building construction industry in 2003, the following observation was made Security of payments is an issue that critically affects the ability of participants in the industry to make a living and to be rewarded for work that they have performed. Frequently, subcontractors do not have the expertise or resources to enforce their legal rights because enforcement would require attractive litigation against much better resourced and more sophisticated companies. This is an obvious issue for contractors and subcontractors and quite some efforts, as no doubt many of you are aware, have been made by the legislatures across the country to provide avenues to avoid the kinds of consequences we see foreshadowed in that extract. Broadly speaking, there are three key avenues that I intend to cover today by which contractors or contractors both both might secure a payment to to them. Now, the first is the industry of payment legislation. This is sometimes referred to in various jurisdictions as the disciple legislation in each state and territory. And it provides a regime of progress payments, effectively, which are widely considered to be one of the most effective ways that a contractor's cash flow can be preserved and maintained. Relevant in South Australia, each of which has a legislation which enables the subcontractor to seek direct payment from the principal of money due to the head contractor with whom the subcontractor has contracted. And finally, there are the usual procedures under the Corporations Act for the issue of statutory demands and related winding up proceedings. We'll turn back to those briefly in turn. First, as to the security of payments legislation, each state and territory has their own Security Payments Act and these are listed on the slide. Generally speaking, it's true to say that each of these has three key policy objectives. The first, to preserve cash for construction contractors. Second, to provide a quick and efficient adjudication process. And third, to pro- protect progress payments for those to whom they are rightfully due. Now, Slightly outside the scope of our discussion today, but there are two points that I want to note in law. The first is that these regimes might be aware are often subject to criticism for their failure to meet these and a number of other objectives. Most recently, uh, as an example in my jurisdiction, Justice Dalton in the Supreme Court concluded one of her judgments with a try to pass a quote irrational and fair law in relation to the recovery of payments under contracts to perform building work. Now these criticisms are notwithstanding uh, and not a significant number of reviews have been, have been undertaken rather, both at the national and state level over the past decade and numerous consequential amendments have been made to the various regimes in that time as well. The second point to note before we move on is that there are often cries for, to, for the different state and territory regimes to be consolidated into a uniform national approach. This is one noteworthy recommendation of the Murray Review released nearly two years ago. Some work will need to to be done to achieve uniformity across the states and territories. So, how does security payment legislation across the country support to achieve these three key policy objectives? Security payments of payments regimes have historically been broadly defined into two categories. The first is described as the West Coast model, which is essentially the Western Australian and Northern Territory regime. And the second is then described as the East Coast model, which is essentially the remainder. Now that is not, I hesitate to say, to suggest that the acts are uniform within those categories, far from it in fact, but there is significantly greater commonality within as opposed to between those two categories. For the present purposes, it devices to identify that two key critical differences between the two categories. On the, first, on the one hand, the East Coast model provides for detailed statutory payments regimes, <coughs> inconsistent contractual provisions in many instances, whereas by contrast, the West Coast model has historically largely preserved rather than overridden the party's contractual interim payment regime. As another example, uh, these first model acts only typically allow for payment claims to be made up the contractual stream, that is, by subcontractor against contractor or head contractor against the principal. Conversely, the West Coast model has, in the past, um, allowed for payment claims both up and down the contractual stream. Relevantly, somewhat for present purposes in today's presentation, the focus uh, of our topics are um, somewhat similar across the acts. That is, they. They follow a similar process for submission and adjudication upon payment claims for progress payments. Now this is particularly relevant for today's purposes because it is the process by which – I should say sorry, the process which invites the strict obligations and associated time limits and then the civic consequences for failing to comply with those time limits that are most likely to be affected by COVID-19 restrictions and impacts. So for the purpose of today's presentation, and for some convenience, I propose to take you through an example of the procedure in one possible scenario, as it applies under the Queensland Act. It is worth noting, however, as I said before, that, the, that each Act does differ and includes its own time limit for each step in the process. And there are various nuances to the structure of each regime. Not only that, but can I say it's also necessary to be cognizant when looking across different regimes. Of the different counting of days provisions that we've seen in the different acts and the different state and territory interpretation legislation, there are a variety of different possibilities under the Act, the Queensland Act, depending on which action is taken at a <coughs> by various parties. For today's purposes, which is probably the most And under the Queensland Act, this is a day upon which a person who has carried out construction work under a construction contract, those terms being themselves separately defined under the Act. Is entitled to progress payments. We see that in section 70. In Queensland, under the Act, this date means the date provided in the contract, or if there is no such date, the last date of the first month in which construction work was taken, and the last date of each month thereafter. <coughs> Second, if we move along the top row, is the payment claim. Now, a payment claim is a written document which identifies the work done, done payment due, and the Third is the delivery of a payment schedule, and this is where the time limits that I foreshadowed earlier really start to kick in. Now, this is a document served by the respondents to a payment claim, which identifies the payment claim, states the amount which the respondent intends or is willing to pay, and provides reasons. As we see there, there is a ten business day limit upon the time frame for doing so. Now, the fourth, fifth, and sixth. Uh, stages that we see in the bottom row are all fairly self-explanatory. They're an adjudication application, a response, and ultimately a decision. But again we see some critical and short time frames for each of those, being 10 business days, five business days, and then 10 business days respectively for each step. So importantly, and this is a point that I appreciate many of you will be no doubt perfectly aware of is that the critical feature of the regime, or a critical feature of the regime and of its counterparts, is the strictness of the time limits which are imposed. So what we can see from this slide is that there is little room for delay in the timeframes under the Act. They are frankly deliberately short, sharp and unforgiving. And there are consequences, as you also know, for failure to adhere to those timeframes and requirements. For instance, it can mean that a principal or contractor is forced to pay the full amount on a payment claim without the opportunity of response, defence or appeal, or at a minimum at least loses its ability to put forward its case, even if it does dispute the claim amount. If I can come back to the security of payments legislation a little later, but move now to the second category of protection for subcontractors, which I mentioned earlier, which is the subcontractors debts and charges legislation in Queensland and South Australia. I've identified the relevant acts and chapters on the slide. Again, this legislation enables subcontractors to seek direct payment from the principal of monies due to the head contractor with whom he is contracted. That is, it provides a way for subcontractors to secure payment of amounts owed to them under a contract by someone who is higher in the contractual chain. Now again, I hope you will all forgive me for reverting back to the jurisdiction with which I am most familiar. But as we can see on the slide, there's an extract there from the Building Industry Fairness Security Payments Act of Queensland, and these are provisions in slightly different form were uh, formally contained in the Subcontractors Charges Act of 1974. So the extract that we see on the slide uh, really includes the foundation of the entitlement to the charge, but relevantly, again, we see some strict time limits imposed by the Act. So the first that we see is that a notice of claim for a subcontractor's charge must be brought within three months after practical completion of the relevant work. Now that notice must relevantly be given to the person to whom it says obliged to pay the money and it can relate to money already paid by that person or money to become payable by that person for work that has already been done by the subcontractor. Now the notice as well must be given to the contractor itself and immediate consequences follow once that occurs. So the first and most obvious one is that the person who is given the notice of the claim, that is the person who says to be obliged to pay it, must retain a sufficient part of the money that is or is to become payable by them until the court orders about to who and in what way that money is to be paid. If they fail to do so, they become personally liable to the subcontractor and that sum is ultimately recoverable as a debt against them. Once the notice is then given to the contractor, the contractor must provide a written response within 10 business days after being given notice of the claim. And we see that in Section 120A of the Act. Now, like the Security of Payments regime, there are severe consequences for families to comply with this. This time, penalties are payable. At the moment, the Queen's under-accepts this at 20 penalty units. The other significant consequence that we see for failing to comply with time limits under the subcontractor's charges regime appears in relation to proceedings to enforce the subcontractor's charge. Now that proceeding must be commenced within one month or four months, uh, depending on the applicable provisions, and a failure to commence in time means that the charge is automatically extinguished, and we see that in section 136. Now to move on then, finally, in this overview section to the Corporations Act and in particular to statutory demands. Now, the procedure for statutory demands under the Corporations Act is one which is well known. It enables a contractor or a subcontractor to serve a creditor's statutory demand on a company with whom it has been contracted. Now, a, sub, a statutory demand may be served by a creditor to whom the company currently owes at least the statutory minimum, which is subject to what we'll come to later. Presently, two thousand dollars. If the company wishes to have the demand set aside, it must apply to the court within 21 days of service of the demand, or otherwise pay to the creditor the amount in the demand. And again, I stress the eight on such a letter. The sense of those time limits will continue to apply is something of which we should all be aware. This is particularly so in circumstances where one can fairly expect to see a further increase in addition to that, which Matthew foreshadowed earlier, in contractor or subcontractor claims and where access to high copy documents and files might be more difficult, particularly in those tight time frames. Companies may also find perhaps that their usual experts or consultants or witnesses who are isolated or indeed vulnerable are less readily available to them. Before we come back to the legislative regime and how the prescriptive timetables might be adjusted in our new COVID-19 world, I'll pass over to Matthew for an overview of some of the impacts of COVID-19 on the construction industry and in the construction law space more generally.
1: So the next topic obviously is what is. Look, frankly and obviously, it's impossible to know the full extent of the impact coronavirus has had on the building and construction landscape. If we turn our minds to the backdrop against which coronavirus appears, of course, it comes on the back of, in Australia at least, an already challenging market. Figures published earlier in the year by the Australian Bureau of Statistics recorded a 2.9% drop in overall activity for the last quarter of 2019. A 4.3% fall in residential building work for December and a 3.6% fall in non-residential building work for the same period. There's widespread apprehension that the global pandemic will lead to a further decline, and there's already evidence to support that concern. According to Moody's, the global outlook for the construction sector has changed to negative for the first time since 2017, prompted in their view by coronavirus disruptions, slowing economic growth and low oil prices. One need not look terribly hard, for example, at a local level recently here in Queensland, Hutchinson's, one of Australia's largest builders, made 200 staff redundant. Cut wages by 15% and was reported to be paying employees for only four days of work despite many normally working six-day weeks. Its employees are said not to be eligible for the JobKeeper initiative because Hutchies has not recorded a 50% drop in revenue, that being the eligibility requirement for businesses with a turnover greater than a million, uh, half a million dollars. Those changes have been reported as being expected to remain in place for as long as 12 months and they arose against the background of Hutchinson's future workbook dwindling by half a billion in a matter of weeks due to half a dozen projects falling over or being placed on hold. Now, of course, it's not restricted to Hutchinson's. It's a convenient and local example that I dwell upon. At a natu- national level, the CEO of Master Builders Australia says the impacts alarming. 73% of respondents surveyed by that organisation reported a substantial fall in forward work on their books, with 40% being lost on average. Looking internationally, COVID-19 is having a massive impact on construction projects, but the legal implications of course vary from country to country and contract to contract. On the contractual side, unsurprisingly, great focus is now being given to the wording of standard form contracts, about which I'll have more to say in due course. At this stage, at least here, COVID-19 is not, broadly speaking, rendering projects altogether impossible to complete, but it is slowing them down, causing delay and disruption, even if only because supply chains have been disrupted. Many projects have stopped, usually with the intention to resume work at a later date. Governments in some parts of the world have ordered that certain businesses stop working, but here in Australia, the construction industry has generally not been the subject of audit shutdowns. That's for a number of obvious reasons, including the importance of the continuation, if possible, of construction and infrastructure projects, and the fact that the health and safety risks of COVID-19 vary from project to project. For example, people who are working outside are not physically close to each other and may be in a better position to comply with the new health and safety precautions than people working in enclosed environments. That said, of course, the is evolving. We know that several countries have now ordered the suspension of all non-essential businesses, which covers most construction projects. In a few countries, there have even been specific orders requiring construction sites to close or entitling contractors to suspend works and to extensions of time until the end of the state of emergency period, especially in public works. Attempts at restart of society in other parts of the world with particularly notable resurgences of infection in Singapore and Germany after that has occurred should cause us not to rule out the possibility of even more extreme measures being opposed here in the future. But despite all of that in Australia comparatively speaking it's not all bad news. Our response to the first wave COVID-19 threat appears to have been much more successful than for many other nations. There's reason to think that we may be much better placed socially and economically to reinvigorate our economy when things return as much as they can to normal. Of course governments around Australia have been quick in attempting to meet the current crisis with legislative and regulatory responses. A few weeks ago in New South Wales a new ministerial order prompted by COVID-19 was released. It relates to the construction and development industry. You can read the full terms of the order on the website, I've left the address in the slide. Under the terms of that order, construction sites in New South Wales are now permitted to operate on weekends and public holidays irrespective of what their consent may otherwise allow subject to conditions restricting the types of works and hours worked on those days and a general obligation to minimise noise on those additional days. The intention, of course, is to keep construction projects progressing by allowing building work to be spread across more days of the week while abiding by social distancing rules. It's said that authorities in that state, at least, are undertaking random inspections for compliance with social distancing distancing rules, so that's something that contractors and their advisers alike need to be aware of. Contractors, of course, should take full advantage of these new rules to sequence works in a way which balances both the health and safety of employees with commercial deadlines. In a similar vein, the Victorian government has announced it will establish a task force to help keep the state's building and development industry running through the coronavirus crisis. The Building Victoria's Recovery Task Force will be overseen by the Planning and Housing Minister and the Treasurer, and senior industry representatives have been appointed co-chairs of that task force. It will have the responsibility of investigating opportunities to boost Victoria's building and development industry over the short, medium and long term. Its initial focus will be on fast-tracking planning approvals using ministerial powers. It will also advise the government on issues impacting in the industry. So with the governments, or at least some of them, attempting to do their part, what response should flow from industry? It's sad to say that with the myriad challenges being experienced, stakeholders in the construction and infrastructure sector need to remain flexible and take steps to comply with regulations and mitigate the impact of future events. Needless to say, parties should ensure they have a thorough understanding of the rapidly changing regulations as well as the contractual provisions that may apply and seek advice before taking steps to refuse access to a site or other measures that may result in claims or lost production, such as terminating contracts. Contractual provisions relating to access to site, step-in rights and variation should be carefully considered together with applicable legislative requirements that may restrict the operation of provisions such as termination, descoping, or other actions under clauses triggered where insolvency looms. In addition to the contractual provisions that may assist in providing relief, there are practical considerations that need to be taken into account. If a party determines it has an entitlement to relief under a contract as a result of the COVID-19 outbreak, it's imperative to follow the contractual notice and claim procedures to ensure the right to that relief is not time barred. Most contracts, of course, provide that if notices are not given on time, entitlements are waived. So parties need to be mindful of the contractually triggering events and ascertain exactly when the event first occurs so they can ensure notice is given in a timely manner by reference to the appropriate dates. It's a never-ending source of mystery to those of us who practice in the courts and arbitral tribunals how frequently those notice obligations are assiduously ignored in normal practice. They are more important now when it's not business as usual than ever. Contractors will often have an express duty to minimise delays or other impacts caused by force majeure events. Contractors should be ready to provide their principals with delay minimisation plans to enable the principal to assess whether the steps proposed to be taken by the contractors are adequate and to monitor compliance with the plan as time progresses. A contractor's failure to do so may undermine contractual entitlements arising from the outbreak. In the current economic climate, it may not be commercially feasible to continue work on projects, or it may be commercially advantageous for construction and even operational resources projects to defer work or part of projects until the outbreak and shutdown measures cease and conditions are more favourable In some instances, if permitted under the contract, this may be possible by deferring work on a separable portion of the work or otherwise reducing the scope altogether until such time as productivity can resume to normal levels. It may be possible, perhaps necessary, to negotiate standstill agreements with subcontractors and principals to effectively cease work for the time being. These agreements may allow for hired plant and equipment to be secured or removed from site and subject to workplace relations considerations, non-essential staff could be stood down so that Skeleton crews can maintain security on-site until normal operations can resume. Where possible, those agreements should cover the entire period during which disruption is likely to remain. Those aspects should be reviewed as restrictions to movement and assembly are lifted. And to facilitate that, it may be necessary to stage agreements with initial period but options for extension if the conditions don't approve. They should, those agreements, provide for the suspension of contractual milestones and allow for automatic extensions of time to complete them, or the work in its entirety, by a period equivalent to the period of interruption. They might also provide that no fault is to be attributed to any party due to the delay, and that the rights of all parties are preserved as at the date of the standstill agreement. Variations, of course, in the form of standstill agreements or otherwise, must be made in accordance with the requirements of the relevant clauses in the contract. By way of example, AS 4902-2000 provides that the superintendent may give the contractor a written notice of proposed variation, While the contractor must, as soon as possible after receiving the notice, notify the superintendent whether the proposed variation can be affected and the impact it will have on the program. If parties intend to waive any rights under the contract, it's crucial that prior written consent is given by them to the affected variations, and parties seeking to vary contracts should be mindful of prohibitions, prohibitions on actions That have the effect of circumventing existing provisions. Care should be taken in implementing these types of changes and parties considering them should seek advice to ensure that their intended steps don't contravene legislation, particularly fast-moving legislative updates, uh, given the rapidly evolving legislative response to COVID-19. So these are high level steps that are capable of being taken at a high contractual level, but there are measures that can be taken on the ground as well. Preventative measures should be implemented on site to deal with the effects of an outbreak at a practical level. Additional cleaning, temperature checking, leave modifications, quarantine orders and additional accommodation should all be considered. An example of that recently is the Victorian State Government and union industry partners recently announced and lauded OcoLink Scania health bus debut for an on-site worker COVID-19 corona testing system. Effectively, it's a bus which travels from place to place uh, permitting Uh, ongoing COVID-19 testing. We can expect to see more of that and contractors can expect to be prepared to cooperate with that kind of initiative as testing certainly becomes more widely available within the community at large. Proactive measures should also be taken to ensure workarounds are able to be quickly implemented in the event that further restrictions on travel are implemented to deal with supply chain chain challenges and labour shortages and to manage personnel health and safety. Some companies have already relocated workers and implemented elongated rosters to extend the length of working swings for fly-in, fly-out workers and thereby minimise lost time due to quarantine requirements associated with travelling. Alternative sources of supply of labour and materials should be considered and especially where state border restrictions remain in force as they do currently here in Queensland and some other states in this country. Where disputes arise, they should be resolved swiftly, and parties should be aware of the availability of and relevant time rack frames relating to fast-tracking dispute resolution through security of payment legislation. In some circumstances, early resolution of disputes by adjudication may be the most decisive, timely, and cost-effective means of avoiding protracted derailment of a project. Parties should have a good knowledge of contractual requirements surrounding dispute resolution methods the records that will be necessary and the notice periods and timeframes that apply. Steps should also be taken to ensure all records, material, site, security and books are in order and available to ensure responsiveness at short notice if required. Now, of course, these are all measures which one ought ordinarily be implementing in any event. But now more than ever, with cash flow more imperative than ever, not holding up these dispute resolution mechanisms is absolutely essential. And so, I'll throw it back now to Bianca to take us through some of the, um, the ongoing legislative changes to which I've referred.
2: Thanks very much, Matthew. And apologies to everyone for um, the difficulties, sorry, for the difficulties that we had earlier. Hopefully the steps we've taken in that time have resolved them and it'll be smoother sailing going forward. So. As uh, Matthew said before, we looked at time limits and security for payment regimes, but the question remains what, if anything, has been done to mitigate against the impacts of COVID-19 on those timeframes and the difficulties that parties may face in meeting them. So as Matthew also alluded to, the landscape is rapidly changing um, and this will become apparent in the next few minutes. So can I stress that it's important to stay abreast of any continuing changes by regularly checking in with your local legislation links and updates. So, if I can start first with the changes to the statutory demand regime, which is something you might have heard about already in the media it received some publicity. So, effective on the 25th of March of this year, the Commonwealth Government passed a suite of temporary measures in the Coronavirus Economic Response Package Omnibus Act. Now, this included, relevantly, changes in respect of statutory demands. And the two most pertinent of those uh, first, that the minimum debt for a statutory demand is now $20,000, as opposed to the $2,000 that I mentioned earlier. So, plainly, the debt needs to be much more significant before the regime can be invoked. Second, the time for compliance by a debt or company is now six months, instead of the 21 days that I mentioned earlier. This is significant. It essentially delays the enforcement of a statutory demand Uh, and so the underlying death, at least by this mechanism, by just shy of five months on the earlier timeframe. So in the same way, it also means that the pressure on companies to respond to a statutory demand as a matter of urgency has dissipated somewhat. Now, these changes will apply to statutory demands that are served on or after the commencement of the schedule, uh, and it is expressly included that it is automatically to be repealed after six months. That's not to say it won't be extended depending on on circumstances at the time. So there might be a debate to be had as to how positive these changes are. Um, For example, they might have the effect that debtors can avoid going insolvent during this crisis, which might commercially ultimately be more effective for the ultimate payment of those companies' creditors, including contractors. If the company, that is, can trade out of this difficult period and out of insolvency, it could have an overall beneficial impact for all. However, it also reduces plainly the stick which contractors might have to secure their payment promptly, and so will then have flow-on consequences for contractor and subcontractor cash flows, their employees and other creditors, in many instances perhaps their own livelihoods, if we refer back to that extract we saw at the beginning. What I think we can expect to see, however, is subcontractors making more use of other avenues available to them to secure those monies owed to them, including subcontractor charges, and security of payment regimes. One of the less publicised changes introduced by the Commonwealth Government includes the inclusion of the section 1362 capital A of the Corporations Act by which the Minister may, by legislative instruments, exempt classes of persons from the operation of specified provisions of the Act or regulations or modify the operation of specified provisions of the Act or regulations in relation to classes of persons. This is limited to only the next six months and applies if the Minister is satisfied that it would not be reasonable to expect the persons in the class to comply with the provisions because of the impact of COVID-19 or the exemption or modification is otherwise necessary or appropriate in order to facilitate continuation of business in circumstances relating to COVID-19 or to mitigate the economic impact of COVID-19. So relatively broad language being used there. This power has been exercised a number of times to date, but none of those uh, appear to have any impact for what we're particularly concerned with. However, again, I would suggest to watch this space for further legislative instruments that might be introduced at the federal level. Then turning to the security for payments and subcontractor charges regime, One might think perhaps unfortunately or fortunately, depending on your camp to date, no state or territory has passed any legislation specifically dealing with the security for payments regimes or subcontracted charges regimes. However, there are a number of developments which indicate that change might be on the horizon. So in recent times, in particular, a number of states have passed legislation that is intended generally to deal with COVID-19 impacts and which application might apply or could be applied in this space. So I hesitate to say this is not an exhaustive list of all of the acts passed across each state in relation to COVID-19 impacts, but only those which seem to have relevant or potentially relevant application to this area. So the first to act was Tasmania in the COVID-19 Disease Emergency Miscellaneous Provisions Act of 2020. Now in that act, provision is made in section thirteen for the minister to declare by notice that a period by which an action specified in the notice must be taken is reduced or extended. Now, It's safe to say that the intended scope of the provision is not quite clear, but it is on its face rather broad. For instance, a relevant legislative instrument, which are the terms used in the section, is defined to mean an act or an instrument of a legislative character. So a broad application there, I'd suggest. The second state to act was South Australia in the COVID-19 Emergency Response Act passed on the 8th of April. Now, That that act contains a variety of different COVID-19 related changes, but most relevantly, as part of the general modifications section in the Act, it provides in Section 14 that if an, if in accordance with an Act or law or an instrument, anything needs to be done at a particular time or within a particular period, or anything would expire or cease at a particular time or at the end of a particular period, however expressed, the Governor may, by regulation, postpone that time or extend that period, whether subject to conditions, or application only to a particular class of requirements under the Act. Now, plainly, that also has potentially very broad application. We don't seem to have seen any regulations passed yet in South Australia to give particularly exciting content to this provision, although practitioners might be pleased to hear, at least on a practical level, that there has been the passing of the COVID-19 emergency response section 16 regulations which makes some new provisions for the taking of statutory declarations at least and broaden the categories of persons that might take those declarations. So a practical benefit at least. Finally then, we see on the 23rd of April 2020, we had some action by both the Victorian Government and the Queensland Government, who each took a similar step by passing their own legislation, being the COVID-19 Omnibus Emergency Measures Act 2020 and the COVID-19 Emergency Response Act 2020 respectively. Given the time we have available, I'll just uh, touch on the Queensland Act particularly. It does two critical things. First, in Section 13, it applies again in similar terms to what we've seen before, where an Act provides for a period within which an entity is authorised to do a thing, and that includes expressly to make an application, pay an amount, comply with a direction, make a decision or give reasons. There might be some um, question about what an authorisation is as opposed to an obligation, for instance. But in those circumstances, the act is then ta- the act uh, that makes that provision is taken to include a power to make a regulation provided for the period to be modified. So, for instance, in Queensland, the uh, Building Industry Fairness Security Payments Act is now taken to include a regulation-making power to modify the time limits for both the progress payments regime and the subcontractor charges regime, subject to, as I said earlier, that potential tension in the language. That power is expressly said to permit the regulation to express and modify the period, authorise an entity having a function under the Act to modify the period, or authorise an entity mentioned um, earlier, that is, having a function under the Act to delegate or sub-delegate that power. Now, like in South Australia, there don't appear to have been any particularly exciting regulations released to date. But again, I say watch this space carefully. What is perhaps even more notable is section 15 of the Queensland Act, which permits where an Act provides for a period within which an entity is authorised or required to do a thing relating to a proceeding, including, for example, to take a step, appeal, give reasons, etc. That period may be modified on the ground that the modification is necessary for the purpose of this Act, and that language, including authorised or required, might be clearer for our purposes. Now that power might be exercised if it applies generally to a class of persons or matters by regulation, or if it applies to a particular proceeding by a court having jurisdiction in relation to the proceeding, proceeding, giving a notice, whether whether on the court's own initiative or by application of a party. Now, it goes on to say, and, and this is the most notable aspect in my view, to say to remove any doubt, this applies and enables modifications to, amongst other things, and not to limit the categories, the Limitation of Actions Act of 1974 in Queensland. So no other no other act across the country puts this in such clear terms, and I'd suggest it's a rather um, notable development uh, and perhaps a sign that we might see of the things to come, uh, including more broad-spanning changes to the time limits that we see across the country in all areas. Speaking then of things to come, I'll hand back over to Matthew.
1: Thanks, Bianca. Although uh, work may for the most part in Australia not have stopped being classified by the definitions in most states as an essential service, there are expected to be supply chain disruptions and constraints on mobilising personnel. I Wanted to deal briefly with the kinds of things we can expect uh, might give rise to future claims. Even though work may have been able to continue, in many instances, progress may have been or continue to be affected by unexpected issues like members of the workforce being required to self-isolate and supply chain disruptions, particularly for Chinese-produced imports. So how are these issues to be addressed? Most contracts contain clauses relating to kinds of delays to the construction period which entitle the contractor to claim an extension of time. While it's unlikely, in my experience, that most contracts will include clauses relating to a pandemic, other existing bases of delay entitlement may come to the aid of those affected by the impacts of the coronavirus. For instance, the unavailability of material necessary to carry out work, or the unavailability of labour, including subcontract labour, necessary to carry out work with reasonable diligence, or any other cause not reasonably foreseeable at the date of formation of the contract and beyond the reasonable control of the contractor. Of course, if such grounds are listed in the contract and the need for making a claim for an extension of time arises, notice of the delay must be provided as soon as the claimable delay becomes apparent, and most importantly, as I've already observed, in the manner and within the timeframe stipulated within the contract. It's important for contractors to claim extensions of time strictly in accordance with their contracts. Failing to make the claim may result in a substantial liquidated damages claim being brought by a client even in circumstances where the delay is as a consequence of the effects of the coronavirus. Some contracts may have a force majeure clause that may prescribe a list of events beyond the reasonable control of the parties and what each party's rights and obligations may be if any of those events were to occur. For example, the clause may allow the parties to bring an end to the contract or suspend the obligations of the party for the period of the force majeure event. But prior to any attempt to rely on the force majeure clause, parties to a building contract should consider what other subcontracts or supply agreements may also be affected by the termination or suspension of the contract, as those subcontracts or supply agreements may not include a force majeure clause at all, or the terms of the force majeure clause under those agreements may not be triggered under the same event. Although a contractor may have force majeure rights in its building contract, if those rights don't coexist in the subcontracts or supply agreements, the contractor, for example, may be required to take delivery and pay for ordered materials that aren't required because the head contract has been terminated. Commonly, commercial building contracts include force majeure clauses. However, most standard form of building contracts don't include such articles. Such clauses need to be drafted separately as a special condition prior to entering into the contract. Given the likely impact the pandemic may have on the building industry, the inclusion of a force majeure clause in all contracts should be carefully considered. And while I'm dealing with force majeure and moving immediately onto frustration, may I give a a short advertisement uh, for an excellent paper written by one of uh, Bianca's and my chambermates, Angus O'Brien. It's available on our uh, Chamber's website, level27chambers.com.au. Uh, it's also available on linkedin it's a very considered paper and i uh, i can't commend it to you highly enough so the dealing then with frustration in the absence of a force majeure clause the common law frustration doctrine may apply frustration occurs where without default of either party a contractual obligation is incapable of being performed because the circumstances in which performance is called for would render it a thing radically different from that which was undertaken by the contract. Whether a contract has been frustrated or not will need to be determined on a case-by-case basis, but generally, it should be noted that frustration will not occur where one of the parties is at fault. And the event which caused the frustration needs to be unforeseeable and uncontrollable, and the parties must be prevented from fulfilling their obligations under the contract. It's not sufficient for the obligation to merely be more costly or difficult. That does not give rise to frustration of the contract. Another issue to consider is the change in legislative requirements. Clause 11.2 of an unamended AS 4902 entitles a contractor to claim for change in law. Specifically, if a legislative requirement necessitates a change to the principal's project requirements, the works, the provision of services by a public or statutory authority in connection with the work under contract, and comes into effect after the 14th day before the closing of tenders, usually amended to state after the date of the contract. And could not have reasonably been anticipated by a competent contractor at that time, and causes the contractor to incur more or less costs than it otherwise would have, then the difference will be assessed and added to or deducted from the contract sum. Most other contracts, including the GC 21, for example, deal with changes in law in similar ways. Therefore, if the state or federal government makes an order, gives a direction or brings into effect legislation that necessitates a change to the works, the principal's project requirements or provisions of services by a public or statutory authority in connection with the works under the contract, a contractor may be entitled to claim for any additional costs it may incur. In effect, subject to drafting, it'll be treated as a variation. Owners and contractors contractually allocate costs and schedule risk with express insurance requirements, indemnity provisions and clauses covering change in variation, force majeure and change in law. These provisions vary the allocation of risk by providing contractors with complete relief for costs incurred, overheads and profits to express bars against relief for schedule, schedule the cost impacts and everything in between. But what happens when a risk appears of such scope that it materially alters not only a single party or project, but also both parties entity wide risk profile? In these rare instances, many contractors and owners will likely find the contractual allocations of risk intolerable or unsustainable driving them to seek relief through claims and formal dispute resolution and testing the application, interpretation and enforceability of foundational mechanisms for risk allocation within the construction industry. Formal disputes are likely to raise conflicts between express contractual contractual agreements and traditional common law principles such as prevention, frustration and impossibility. And in some cases parties may find themselves in their contracts subject to a court's application of such principles. In a manner intended to reflect modern judgments about the balancing and burden of significant loss. Given the extent of economic disruption, national and local governments are also likely to intervene with attempts at reallocation of loss through legislative insurance coverage, liability caps, and other statutory and regulatory mechanisms. US courts have begun to address these issues. There was a significant decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court in Friends of the Veto and others, and Tom Wolfe Governor and others in which the court faced the question of whether COVID-19 fell within the definition of a, quote, natural disaster, close quote. While not in the context of insurance or a force majeure clause, the court's decision that the virus' physical characteristics and impacts rose to a level of, quote, damage to property, close quote, could have far-reaching consequences for insurance policies also requiring physical damage or presence if that approach is adopted here and elsewhere. I turn then to the question of drafting new contracts, and the question in particular, of course, is how to draft for COVID-19 risks in new contracts. The first thing to uh, underscore is that COVID-19 is of course now a known risk, and therefore it should be appropriately drafted for in new contracts. Contractors should be wary that for new contracts entered into now or very recently, they may not be able to make a claim for costs associated with a change in the legislative requirement. There's actually change is arguably one that could have been anticipated by them, or at least by a competent contractor at the time of entering into the contract. That claim entitlement will vary, however, depending on the drafting of the contract. It's therefore important for contractors to also ensure that COVID-19 related risks are contemplated and drafted for prior to signing a contract at this time. Other issues to consider would be the impact of a contractor's supply chain, especially where materials are being sourced from overseas and not within Australia, And how a contractor plans to comply with the New South Wales Health Guideline regarding isolation of persons who've come in contact with a confirmed COVID-19 case and similar requirements in states elsewhere in Australia. Because force majeure events are typically defined as unexpected, unknown or unexpected circumstances and consequences of the COVID-19 outbreak are currently known, albeit not necessarily the specifics on a country-by-country basis, there's a discussion to be had in relation to contracts that have not yet been entered into around how the outbreak is to be treated. In my view, certainty is best served by specific drafting to include or exclude COVID-19 consequences. So what then of the crystal ball for future work? Globally, industry press suggests that contractors are looking at how their backlog is going to be affected. The prediction, or perhaps one should say hope, is that in July, August and September timeframe, there's going to be a lot of work that has to be completed. Some perhaps overly optimistically, are tipping a, quote, construction tsunami, close quote, for a lot of markets over the next six months. That remains to be seen. Locally, state governments are looking to the construction industry to prop up the ailing economy and the coronavirus pandemic, tweaking planning regulations to keep the industry ticking over. The New South Wales government has announced it would fast-track assessments of state significant developments, rezonings and development applications with more decisions to be made by the planning minister. The Planning Sydney Accelerator Program aims to clear the current backlog of cases stuck in the Land and Environment Court with additional acting commissioners. The government will introduce a one-stop shop for industry to progress projects projects that may be stuck in the system, and invest $70 million to help fund works on roads, drainage, and public parks in northwest Sydney. In Queensland, urgent amendments to planning legislation introduced in late March are now in effect. Those amendments give the planning minister greater flexibility to suspend or extend any of the statutory timeframes across the planning framework. The government has also relaxed heavy vehicle lockout restrictions at the site of the $3.6 billion Queen's Wharf project as a way of helping that project move forward, which perhaps gives us some insight into the way the government will approach projects more generally here in this state. The Western Australian planning minister has also announced a range of exemptions to local planning requirements under state of emergency powers. The Minister's been given authority to temporarily override requirements and conditions set out in local planning schemes and existing conditions in planning approvals. A blanket two-year extension has also been granted for all current development approvals to assist job-creating projects during the recovery recovery stage. Looking ahead, it seems there's an imperative for a new supply chain model. A decades-long focus on supply chain optimization to minimize costs, reduce inventories, and drive up asset utilization has removed buffers and flexibility to absorb disruptions and COVID-19 illustrates that many companies are not fully aware of the vulnerability of their supply chain relationships to global shocks. Indeed the same might be said of nations generally. Whether this has been a black swan event, uh, it's not isolated. Uh, Trade wars, active wars, terrorism, regulatory change, labour disputes, sudden spikes in demand or supplier bankruptcies are all events that could have similar effects. contractors simply cannot afford to ignore the lessons to be learned from the COVID-19 crisis, and indeed their advisors uh, must assist them in learning those lessons. Those are the uh, the issues about which uh, we propose um, ahead of time to speak. I note there's a question um, box flashing here, so I'll throw back to Sean to, uh, to ask away
3: thank you matthew thank you bianca um for excellent presentations uh, apologies to everyone for the um the audio difficulty we have and apologies to bianca as well in true fashion we tested this all on tuesday and we even tested it this morning and those technical difficulties um hid nicely in wait for the minute that we went live uh, we've got a couple of quick questions here we, we might run just a few minutes over and um, but very quickly one question is uh, I think for Bianca what is the name of the Queensland act you are talking about
2: so it would have been the COVID-19 emergency response act 2020 passed uh, only a week ago on the 23rd of April
3: cool uh, another question and you can fight among yourselves do you have a view on causation for the purposes of force majeure and the distinction if there is one between the virus itself and government actions taken
1: in relation to the virus such as changes in law i must say taking it as a question on notice i i don't immediately um see a distinction depending on what the uh, the consequence of the particular event um, one has in mind now of course there are uh, virus events which um, are unique to particular individuals and, of course, there is, as you rightly identify, um, Ryan, and thanks for the question, um, the government's response. The thing that um, that jumps out at me, of course, is that not every uh, response taken by a government is necessarily one which is, which is actionable. Um, But as between parties, I think it's a a question which needs to be answered on a case-by-case basis. And again, it comes back to the question of what was um, reasonably foreseeable between the parties before the entry into the contract, and what reasonable contractors might have done in the circumstances, and whether um, the events which uh, have arisen are merely inconvenient or really um, render the contract incapable of performance.
3: Okay, a uh, no, couple of quick questions just for the couple of moments we have left. Uh, I might ask this uh, of, of you, Bianca. Is the difficulty faced by parties in accessing legal counsel due to COVID-19 being addressed in any way?
2: Okay, uh, and another good question. I must say, to my knowledge, not formally. As I said at least earlier, the time limits that we've seen in the various legislation and the obligations upon parties to comply with those limits haven't presently been extended, although the mechanisms are there in some states and territories at least. I can say at least what I've observed from my own experience over the past few weeks, and I'm sure Matthew may himself be able to add to this, and that is that in many respects, although not all, it's business as usual. So, fairly extraordinary and swift advances have been made to facilitate the use of technology and to continue to provide legal advice and representation, This is particularly true, I think, from what we've seen here in Queensland, as an example, hearings have been conducted electronically, whether by video link or telephone, uh, and we've seen courts really readily take up that technology to continue to be able to run as usual. One uh, caveat to that and one matter perhaps to be aware of is outside the strict time limits we see in legislation, is that there's been a bit of a mixed response to the court's attitudes to adjournments as a result of COVID 19 impacts. And that might uh, might be expected somewhat, but we are really still waiting to see a really clear formulation of principle or a consistent approach in any sense. Uh, so, in that sense, I encourage at least our industry members that are listening to not delay in seeking legal counsel if you think it's required. Uh, because at least, as I hope this presentation has served to highlight, we haven't yet seen a relaxation on time frames. Time frames, sorry, um, or equally, really in terms of the courts' indulgences. Uh, and on a broad scale.
3: Thank you, Bianca. I'm afraid everyone, the time has caught up with us. Thank you very much for your questions. We weren't able to to get to them all. Um, we're going to have to close it off there. Um, thank you for joining us for our first uh, webinar. As I said, there will be many more. Keep an eye on social media and the website to see when they're coming up. Um, we have had 185 participants in the webinar, some from uh, North America, some from Malaysia as well. So thank you very much for joining us. Um, Everyone have a very good day and we'll finish it off now. Thank you.